Faith, Family, Equality, the Latinx Roundtable, Gender, Sexuality, and the Bible, Center for LGBTQ and Gender Studies and Religion. Thank you for picking up this guide. It is an important step in learning more about LGBTQIA plus persons. Gaining this knowledge is important to becoming more welcoming to LGBTQIA plus trans and gender nonconforming persons. It is important to acknowledge that there is an ongoing learning process. No matter how successful an individual, family member, or a congregation is in welcoming LGBTQIA plus people, there is always room to grow and extend your acceptance, understanding, and affirmation. This guide is specifically for LGBTQIA plus persons, families, and church communities, and others who want to respond in a more affirming way to them. Whether you are an LGBTQIA plus person, a parent, or friend, you are probably curious about what the Bible says about homosexuality and gender, and we hope that the following biblical interpretation of various biblical texts will help people and communities be more affirming and supportive and supportive of LGBTQIA plus persons. This guide is divided into two sections. Section one is on sexuality in the Bible. Section two, beginning on page 14, is on gender in the Bible. Love, not condemnation. Reading again the biblical text on homosexuality. The explanations that follow on how to interpret the Bible are taken from today's mainstream biblical scholars. The explanations and interpretations included in this booklet represent a strong consensus among biblical scholars across the world today. In other words, the interpretations and explanations that we include here are the most reliable, accurate, and frequently cited among biblical scholars when it comes to understanding the biblical text usually said to refer to homosexuality. Let's begin with some basics. We have to avoid speaking in the singular. We should avoid thinking that there has only been one Christianity, one way of being Christian, one Christian response to homosexuality, or one way of understanding homosexuality among Christians. Throughout the 20 centuries of Christian history, the reactions to homosexuality have not always been the same. From the reformations of the 16th century to today, the reactions of Christian denominations have not always been the same. In fact, there have been a great variety of responses to homosexuality among the churches throughout Christian history. That's why we cannot say that Christianity in the singular has had this or that one reaction or response to homosexuality. Okay, there's a side note, footnote here. One, in these pages, we will understand as Christian anyone who self-identifies as a follower of or believer in Jesus Christ. Christian churches, therefore, are all Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Evangelical, Pentecostal, etc. Okay. We must admit that historically there have been and there still are different ways of being Christian, and each one of them in each one of these ways has had historically more than one reaction or response to homosexuality. And we should also recognize that there is not only one Christian way of understanding homosexuality. No one person, no one Christian denomination has the monopoly on what it means to be Christian. No one person in no one Christian denomination has the only possible Christian interpretation of homosexuality. There are Christians who appeal to biblical texts in order to justify their judgment and condemnation of homosexuality and homosexuals. But before we allow that use of the biblical text, we should admit the following. No text in the Bible was written in English or in any modern language. 
all our modern Bibles are translations. That means the translations are not the Bible or parts of the Bible. Translations are attempts to recover for today to the degree possible the meanings that the original authors and their intent led readers might have given the text. Translations are also human attempts at understanding today what the text might say to us. But as with any and all human efforts, therefore, every translation of the Bible is limited, not always correct, and at times outright wrong, and subject to all the contexts and circumstances that affect any human effort. All translations of the Bible were done by translators who were and are part of their societies and cultures. Translators never stop being part of their society and culture when they are translating biblical texts. That is why there has never been and there can never be any translator of the Bible who is not subject to the same prejudices, biases, limitations, and cultural assumptions of their society and culture and of their gender, sexual orientation, social class, race, etc., whether the translator is aware of it or not. Because there has never existed a society or culture without prejudices and limitations, because there has never existed a perfect society or culture or one not affected by sin, there can never be a translation of the Bible that does not reflect the prejudices, biases, and limitations of its translator and of their society. All biblical texts were originally written in ancient languages. The Hebrew Bible, which Christians usually call the Old Testament, was written in classical or biblical Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Kionic Greek, but none of these ancient languages is alive today. Neither is spoken today anywhere in the world. These ancient languages have been dead languages for many centuries. Among other things, this means that there is no one alive today who can tell the translators of the Bible with absolute certainty the exact meanings or uses of all the phrases, words, and idiomatic expressions or of all customs and events that were spoken or took place two or three thousand years ago. All biblical texts were written in and for its cultures, contexts, circumstances, societies, and times very different from ours. All of the New Testament texts were written around 2,000 years ago. Different authors wrote them for different audiences in different places. Today, these places are called Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Turkey, Egypt, Greece, and Italy. All of the Hebrew Bible Old Testament was written around 2,200 to 3,000 years ago. Different authors wrote them in different places. Today's Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Egypt. All translations of the Bible, therefore, are attempts at understanding and interpreting the meaning of what was written many centuries ago in languages, circumstances, societies, and cultures very different from our own. For a translation not to falsify the original meaning of the text, it has to try reaching back into history, looking for what the original authors wanted to express in and through their texts. But this is often very difficult. To reach into the past looking for the original meaning of ancient texts would require knowing about the past and about ancient peoples, languages, and customs. But modern readers of the Bible often do not have this knowledge. What we cannot do if we want to read the Bible honestly and without adulterating it is to make its text fit, in quotations, our preconceived notions of what their meaning must be. Okay, this is footnote number two. Modern Hebrew and modern Greek are not the same as their ancient predecessors, just like modern English is not the same as the Anglo-Saxon and Germanic roots from which it historically derived. 
There are churches or persons today who say or believe that a biblical text means this or that, but that does not prove that the text actually meant what the church or person claims today. We first have to do our homework and ask what it is that the text could have meant or not at the time, in the place and circumstances where it was written, and for the community that first read it. Because a church or church person sincerely believes something is in the Bible, that is not enough to prove or claim that it is or that it is the correct interpretation. We cannot forget that many churches in the past thought that slavery was morally right and that it was justified by, by many biblical texts, yet all of these churches were horribly wrong. If we believe that the Bible is inspired by God, then we should respect what the Bible says and not try to force on the Bible other meanings or interpretations that we want to find in it, meanings that the biblical text did not or could not have. Although no one today can guarantee to us that we have complete and exact access to all the original authors intended to say through their texts, we can study the authors' his history. We can study the authors' history, languages, and cust and context. I'm sorry. We can study the authors' history, languages, and context. We can learn from respected and highly qualified mainstream scholars of the Bible. There is no guarantee that mistakes will not be made, but if we don't do the hard work or learn from those who have really done it, it's almost certain that we'll adulterate the meaning of biblical texts. In this booklet, we present to you the result of years of study and of learning from respected and qualified mainstream scholars of the Bible. The following are the texts from the Hebrew Bi the following are the texts from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament that are frequently used to condemn homosexuality. Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 11. This is the story of the city of Sodom and of how its inhabitants are said to have abused two of Lot's guests in the city. The text is followed by God's destruction of the city because of its many sins. Today, all of the best biblical interpreters and many of the major Christian denominations recognize that this text from the book of Genesis has nothing to do with homosexuality. The sin and abuse committed by the citizens of Sodom was against hospitality. In the ancient Middle Eastern world, hospitality towards guests or towards complete strangers was a sacred obligation. Within the Bible itself, no author of the Hebrew scriptures and no author of the New Testament ever interprets this text from Genesis chapter 19 as referring to homosexuality, and therefore no author in the entire Bible sees this text as condemning homosexuality. It was only after the 11th century after Christ that this text begins to be used directly in reference to homosexuality in order to justify condemning it more than 1,500 years after it was written. The reasons for this sudden and unfounded change in interpretation, however, has been historically proven to have been completely political and ideological. In other words, this text in Genesis chapter 19, the story of Sodom, says nothing about homosexuality. 1 Kings chapter 14 verse 24. There were also feminine men in the land who imitated all the abominable practice of the nations that the Lord cleared out of the Israelites. This text, more accurately translated in many contemporary versions of the Bible, speaks of the reign of Rehoboam, king of Judah. Rehoboam was such a bad ruler that Israel split into two separate kingdoms as a consequence of his bullying incompetence. This section of the first book of Kings, where this verse is found, strongly criticizes Rehoboam for his bad government and for having provoked the division of Israel. As part of its attack on Rehoboam, this section 
of 1 Kings lists the sins that appeared among the Israelites during and because of the reign of Rehoboam. Verse 24, the one quoted here, appears at the end of the list. Before the Israelites arrived in what eventually became their land, other peoples had settled there. These peoples practiced what was called sacred prostitution, also called ritual prostitution. This was part of their religion. They believed that if they had sexual relations with male or female sacred prostitutes who were like priests and priestesses, priestesses of their gods, as part of, as part of worship rituals in the temples, the gods would contribute to the well-being of the people. Ritual prostitution involved men and women as prostitutes. Most of the time, the persons who were prostitutes in these temple rituals were heterosexual. Even sometimes the ritual included same-sex acts. The ancient Hebrew word used by the text to refer to the male prostitutes did not mean or imply infeminate. Therefore, it is incorrect to translate this verse as referring to men who are infeminate because that is not the meaning of the term. It simply meant male prostitute, and we now know from historical studies that the vast majority of these male ritual prostitutes were heterosexual. The abominations in the text refers to the ritual prostitution practiced in the temples of the peoples who had originally settled the land that the Israelites came to occupy. The sin of Rehoboam was that he allowed the renewal of the practice of ritual prostitution and therefore of the pagan religion forbidden to the Israelites. This is the meaning interpretation of this verse and therefore has nothing to do with homosexuality because the vast majority of the male ritual prostitutes were not homosexual but heterosexual. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 18. There shall not be a temple harlot among the Israelite women nor a temple prostitute among the Israelite men. This verse and the one that follows it in the book of Deuteronomy are prohibitions against ritual prostitution, as explained above. The intention of this text is to prohibit the practice of pagan religions among the Israelites. It also helped to forbid prostitution in general. It is evident that this text has nothing to do with homosexuality. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a man as with a woman. Such a thing is an abomination. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a man as with a woman, both of them shall be put to death for their abominable deed. They have forfeited their lives. Chapter 20 of Leviticus is mostly a long list of prescribed punishments incurred by those who would violate the longer list of prohibitions that appear in chapters 17, 18, and 19 of the same biblical book. That's why both texts quoted above have to be interpreted together. These two verses refer to the same prohibition. Chapters 17 through 20 of, Le of Leviticus explain and emphasize the need for ritual purity among the people of Israel, especially among Israelite men. Without being ritually pure, the Israelites could not expect to offer prayers and sacrifices that would be pleasing to God or hurt by God. This biblical book, Leviticus, focuses on ritual purity and pays attention to the moral and religious requirements and conditions necessary to guarantee ritual purity. 
The references above to men who lie with men, therefore, are part of Levitical teaching of ritual purity on the behaviors necessary to maintain it. It is important to note that ancient Israelite society, because it was so male-centered, understood men to be responsible for maintaining ritual purity and for guaranteeing the conditions and for conducting the rituals necessary for the purity of Israel, mostly because of menstruation and also because of ancient and deep-seated patriarchal prejudice Women were not included in these particular ritual acts of purity. Lack of ritual purity was a serious impediment for the practice of ancient Israel's religion. It was a very serious sin with legal, social, and political consequences besides the religious ones. The lack of ritual purity, more importantly, was a was dangerous for the survival and security of Israel as a people. They believed that they were the chosen people of God. Their existence and well-being was totally dependent on God's will and favor. To lack the conditions, ritual purity among them that would allow them to please God meant that the people were threatening their own survival. Consequently, anyone who violated the conditions of ritual purity had to be eliminated. The long list of prohibitions that appear in chapter 17, 18, and 19 of Leviticus followed by the list of punishments in chapter 20, help establish the acceptable and unacceptable behaviors for the people of Israel as the people chosen by God. But it is very evident that these long lists of prohibitions and punishments reflect the culture and circumstances of ancient Israel around 1,500 years before Christ, about 3,000 to 2,500 years ago. The same list prohibits certain food items as impure and also as conducive to the loss of ritual purity. The list is demand that sacrifices to God be offered at the gate of the tent, and it specifies how to conduct the sacrifices, how to dispose of blood and meat, and so on. The list, the list is also prohibit incest, the sacrifice of children to pagan gods, and establishes how and when to harvest the fruits of the land, how to do works of charity, how to make judgments, among others. In other words, these Leviticus Let's focus on what is recommended and on what is prohibited. Today, some of these recommendations or prohibitions might have some value, while others, for example, all that have to do with sacrifices at the gate of the temple have less applicability since the temple no longer exists. To modern Christians, in order to distinguish between what might still be useful, what is not clearly irrelevant to us, we have to understand what each recommendation or prohibition meant in and for the Israelites of Leviticus in their historical and cultural context of what each recommendation and prohibition attempted to establish or protect in its time and its context. Otherwise, we risk adulterating the text by forcing our modern meanings and, prejudice and prejudices on them. In the days of Leviticus, a time of male-centered patriarchal culture, of war, of conquests, of graven, real threats, and of national re reorganization, the security of Israel required in their cultural understanding that Israelite men be real men, or as we would say today, very macho. This explains why among the many prohibitions, one forbade men from behaving as if they were women. In other words, men must not be weak or tolerate other men who would be weak because the security of Israel demanded that they be strong. The culture of the time assumed that only manly men could be strong enough to defend Israel. Women, they assumed, could not be strong, so the behavior needed among men had to avoid all similarities with the behavior of women. Furthermore, the important rituals they needed in order to please God and thereby guarantee their security required purity that was possible only among men. Ancient Israel worried over ritual purity and over ritual prostitution because these were closely connected in ancient 
Israelite culture with survival and security. They existed because God had chosen them, so to please God was absolutely crucial to Israel. They were not worried with homosexuality, as we understand it today, a sexual orientation, but with acting like a woman, because ancient Israelites thought that women were weak and incapable of strong action to defend Israel or to please God. A man's prayer at the time thanked God for not having credited him female, pagan, or animal. These texts of Leviticus have nothing to do with homosexuality. If we understand that there are many norms and prohibitions in the Hebrew scriptures that do not have any value today and that do not apply today because of cultural transformations and because Christianity is not bound to follow the laws of ancient Israel, then it's also important to understand that we cannot judge or condemn anyone today with criteria designed 3,000 years ago for another world and for other purposes. We cannot violate the intent and purposes of ancient biblical texts by forcing them onto present-day circumstances that are, extraordinarily, that are extraordinarily different from those of 3,000 years ago. As seen in the section on gender in the Bible, page 16, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, and Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, present similar issues on ritual purity. The following New Testament texts are frequently used to condemn homosexuality. Do you not know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor boy prostitutes, nor homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. The law is good and instituted not for the good, but for sinners, the unchaste, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers. The first text from the first letter to the Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul. The second text from the first letter to Timothy was most likely written by a disciple of Paul a generation after Paul's death. Both texts in the Kyoin Greek originals use the plural word malakoi in the singular ilbi malakos, which some translations render as homosexuals, but the word malakoi did not mean homosexuals. It meant indecent or immoral. It was also used more strongly to mean masturbators but it never meant homosexuals nor implied a reference to homosexuality. At the time of the authors of the New Testament, their contemporaries knew homosexuals and homosexuality, but neither Paul nor any of the other writers of the New Testament employed the words more frequently used in their cultures to refer to homosexuality and homosexuals. Any reader of the letters of Paul at the time of their writing would have expected and understood the more usual terms, and yet neither Paul nor any New Testament writer used these other words. Neither one of these two texts therefore refers to homosexuality. Neither text uses the words for homosexuals or homosexuality expected in their cultures and at their time. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Because they preferred lies to truth, God handed them over to degrading passions. Their females exchanged natural relations for unnatural, and the males likewise gave up natural relations with females and burned with lust for one another. Males did shameful things with males. This text is from the letter to the Romans written by the Apostle Paul. It comes from the letter's first chapter where, among other things, Paul speaks of God's judgment against humanity because humanity has preferred to believe and follow lies instead of truth. Paul offers here in this first chapter of his letter to Roman Christians a series of examples and consequences that come from not following truth. Among these examples and consequences are the two verses cited, cited here. We must remember two key points. Paul did not believe that Christians were obligated to follow Jewish norms or prohibitions. 
Furthermore, in none of his letters does Paul mention any of the texts from the Old Testament that some people today believe refer to homosexuality. Chapter 15 of the Acts of the Apostles, written at the same time Paul was writing his letters, explicitly states what it is that non-Jewish Christians were bound to observe if they wanted to be Christian. And nowhere is there a mention of homosexuality. In Romans chapter 1, verse 26 to 27, the text cited here, Paul is likely referring to heterosexuals who act homosexually without being homosexuals. It was a widespread custom in the Roman Empire that married heterosexual men and sometimes also married heterosexual women would become involved in homosexual relationships in order to advance their political or military careers or advance economically. These homosexual relationships were often not with other homosexual persons. In fact, most of the time these relationships were with other married heterosexuals. This custom is what Paul condemns. It is the lie that he condemns for Paul. It was against nature for a heterosexual to behave homosexually, especially because it was also for political or financial gain. But nowhere does Paul condemn as against nature the homosexual behavior of persons who are homosexual. It is interesting to note it is, just, it is interesting to know that the expression Paul uses here to say that heterosexuals behaving homosexually are acting against nature is the same expression that appears in chapter 11 of this same letter, where Paul says that God's merciful behavior towards non-Jews is against nature. In Paul's letter to the Romans, there is no reference whatsoever to what today we understand by the term homosexuality. These two verses... From the letter to the Romans speak of God's judgment against those who prefer lies to truth. Therefore, it would make no sense whatsoever to think that Paul would expect persons who are homosexuals to live pretending that they are heterosexuals living a lie. This would contradict the point Paul is making in this chapter that God condemns those who prefer lies to truth. Nowhere in the New Testament, as also nowhere in the Old Testament, is there any mention of what today is understood by homosexuality. Consequently, if we want to speak the evident truth, in no place does the Bible condemn homosexuality as, as, as sexual orientation or homosexual behavior among those who are homosexual. What, does the, what the Bible does say very emphatically is that all Christians must love their neighbors no matter who those neighbors are. The Bible also says that God loves everyone no matter who, always and everywhere, without limits, without exceptions, and without conditions. Whosoever says otherwise is adulterating what is most basic in Christianity, to love unconditionally and without limits, as God loves. To judge others claiming to do so in the name of God is to falsify the Christian message. This is why it is important to remember many other biblical texts. For example, these two texts that teach the same thing as so many other texts from the Bible do as well. What can separate us from the love of God? Will anguish or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor lie nor angels nor principalities nor the present nor the future nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Apostle Paul in this text from his letter to Roman Christians draws a list of early Christianity's worst enemies. The enemies considered most powerful in this world of the first Christians. This list Refer, leads to a single conclusion, nothing and no one can separate us from the love of God, nothing, no matter what it is and no matter who it is. The example Paul includes in his list are so extreme that he makes his point perfectly clear. The love of God has no limits and is not bound by any restrictions, no matter anything anyone else says or does. 
Paul, therefore, clearly teaches that homosexuality is not an impediment for the limitless love of God. There's a clear conclusion possible. God loves homosexual and LGBTQIA plus persons without limits, without conditions, without exceptions, always and everywhere. This is the same way that God loves everyone else. Homosexuality, therefore, is not and has never been an obstacle to the love of God, and it cannot separate us from the love of God. This is true no matter what some other people might want us to believe. Matthew tw- chapter 25 Verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be assembled before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. A stranger and you welcomed me. Naked and you clothed me. Ill and you cared for me. In prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and visit you? And the king will say to them in reply, Amen, I say to you, Whatever you did for one of these least brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you are cursed into the eternal flame, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. A stranger, and you gave me no welcome. Naked, and you gave me no clothing. Ill and in prison, and you did not care for me. Then they will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or ill? Or in prison and not minister to your needs, he will answer them, Amen. I say to you, what you did not do for one of these least ones, you did not do for me. And these will go off to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This text is a parable that is historically composed by Jesus in order to teach something through it. It is found in the gospel according to Matthew. The meaning of this text is evident. The only criterion by which Christ will judge us will be our compassion or lack of it toward other persons and especially toward those most in need. Everything we do or we, or do not do for those in need we do or do not do to Christ himself, even if we don't know it. That's why we can again conclude that homosexuality does not condemn us before God. What will condemn us will be our lack of love and compassion toward others, especially those most in need. But if we love, we will be welcomed by Christ. Gender in the Bible. Many people look to the Bible for guidance and wonder what it says about transgender and gender nonconforming people. The short answer is that our understanding of gender identity the short answer is that our understanding of gender identity today is a modern concept and is based on our much greater understandings of both the human body and mind. However, the Bible does have some very strong parallels to our current knowledge of gender that can guide our understanding today. The Bible, in fact, offers strong support for the inclusion of those whose gender falls between male and female. This may be very surprising to you since often the Bible is not considered from this perspective, or you may have been told that differences in gender are a very recent phenomenon, but that isn't true. The Bible includes the stories of eunuchs, men who were castrated for various reasons, and tells the story of their rejection from religious practices to their complete acceptance. We believe that as people of faith, we are called to follow the same path. The scriptural idea of humanity being created in the image of God has been explored extensively. Unfortunately, the primary male and Eurocentric way these passages have been used has been to make women inferior to men 
gender to exist as a binary in relationships to be between men and women. Because of this, theologians today are using different exegetical and hermeneutical tools to reclaim the image of God for all, including women, LGBTQI plus persons, and transgender and gender nonconforming persons. Some of these new understandings have to do with reading the texts with a different lens. Rather than taking humans' understanding of what God's image is based on our likeness, a theological box, to allow for God's image to be inclusive of much more than we could ever imagine. There's a strong hermeneutical tradition that allows for these passages to be read as being more egalitarian and inclusive than they have been read before. In the end, women are part of the image of God. Sexualities are encompassed in the image of God. In the image of God, gender, identity, and expression goes beyond the binary. Let's examine the Bible passages that address this more clearly. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and then man became a living being. According to the book of Genesis, the first human being God created did not have a specific gender. While the text called this person Adam, the Hebrew word actually isn't a name but a noun for this unique first being. It only becomes a name later in the story. We were probably taught that it is a man's name in the same way it is today, but this ancient story is much more complex than that. Adam literally translates into something like earth person. When this being, the, the Adam, becomes lonely because none of the other creatures, the animals, birds, plants, and so on, are of the same kind, God separates this person into female and male, Eve and Adam. Some people argue that the creation of Adam and Eve means that God only intends for people to be either male or female, with nothing in between. But this fails to take into account that God first created a being without gender and only later created two sexes. It also doesn't acknowledge the great biological diversity of sex that occurs in nature and in human beings, including those who are born intersex. The book of Genesis shows us a creator who is imaginative and celebrates an incredible range of beings, such as coral, that is both plant and animal, or the startling array of ways that life manifests on our planet. Rather than an argument for limitations, Genesis speaks to us of possibilities. This allows everyone to read and explore the following related passages differently as well. A side note for three. All scripture references are from the New Revised Standard Version Bible Translation. The NRSV translation makes a greater effort for inclusion in other translations of the same passages. The, then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. So God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, God created them. These humans, God created them. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. Then God took one of Adam's ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from Adam, God, made into a person and brought to Adam. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 through 22. When God created humankind, God made them in the likeness of God. Humans, God created them, and God blessed them and named them humankind when they were created. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 through 2. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. A woman should not wear a man's apparel, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For whoever does such things is abhorrent to the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. These are two passages in Deuteronomy which are negative, one which prohibits cross-dressing, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, and the other which bars men from full participation in ritual life if they have lost their penis or testicles, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 1. 
Both of these occur in sections of the Bible that are concerned with distinguishing Israel from its neighbors and set out codes of behaviors that the Jewish people were to follow. If you read what falls before and after these single verses, you'll find many prohibitions against mixing things like more than one kind of seed in a field or excluding those who have physical blemishes like skin diseases. It is important to remember that Christians do not follow these ritual laws of ancient Israel, a question that was resolved in the earliest days of the church. To simply pick out some verses or take them out of their ritual purity context while ignoring others is not an accurate or faithful use of the text, particularly when the verses being selected are, are only the ones used to condemn others. More importantly, even while the Bible was written, God was already contradicting these passages to embrace those who lived outside of the binaries of male and female. A section, as seen in the section of homosexuality in the Bible, Deuteronomy and Leviticus on page 69, these are similar issues on ritual purity. The eunuch, Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 to 5, Matthew chapter 19, verses 11 to 12, Acts chapter 8, verse 25 through 19. Acts chapter 8, verse 25 to 39, sorry. One of the most beautiful passages of God's love and welcome for all people occurs in the book of Isaiah. Through the prophet, God tells the people what God wants to maintain justice and do what is right. Then God does something radical. God says that these promises extend to unlikely people, foreigners, eunuchs, and barren women. Eunuchs are an ancient parallel to transgender and gender-variant people. They were men who had been castrated and were therefore no longer considered male, but neither were they female. As we considered earlier, this would have meant that they were excluded from the temple and other aspects of ritual life. But here's what is important. The prophet says in Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 through 5, Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off do not let the eunuchs say I am just a dry tree for thus says God to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off that is, those who were previously separated from the community by the laws in Deuteronomy will now be given a special place if they keep the covenant with God. In God's way of thinking, those who have been separated from their families and communities will be brought to the center within God's own house and given a cherished name that will never be forgotten. Here, God focuses on the faithfulness of each person and the call to justice. We are not to be excluded based on physical characteristics, but uplifted when we are committed to doing what is right and establishing justice in the land. This reverses the commandments in Deuteronomy and puts a new standard before us, telling us to focus on the impact of a person's life first. Matthew chapter 19, verses 11 to 12. The Bible tells us that Jesus was aware that there are different kinds of genders demonstrating both God's knowledge of the natural and human-made variations in gender, as well as the fact that those in the ancient world were aware of this. Jesus states quite clearly in Matthew chapter 19, verses 11 through 12, that, but he said to them, not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let, everyone, let anyone accept this who can. People who have been eunuchs from birth probably refer to those with intersex conditions, that is, with biological characteristics of both male and female bodies. Ancient peoples were aware that some babies are born this way. 
Jesus also talks here about those who have been created to be eunuchs by the hand of others or by their own choice. Jesus doesn't make any judgments or even offer any commentary other than noting that some people have trouble accepting this. But Jesus matter-of-factly states these conditions as different ways of being human. We can follow Jesus' lead by accepting those who live in gender-diverse ways as part of our communities. Acts chapter chapter 8. Verse 25 through 39. Now, after Peter and John had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, proclaiming the good news to many villages of the Samaritans. And an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south to the road that, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Cadence, Queen of Candace queen of the Ethiopians in charge for entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. Go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. And his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom may I ask you? Does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said look here is water what is to prevent me from being baptized he commanded the chariot to stop and both of them philip and the eunuch went down into the water and philip baptized him when they came up out of the water the spirit of the lord snatched philip away the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing in Acts chapter 8 verse 25 through 39 we find one of the most complete accounts of baptism in the early church and a clear sign of how we are to treat people who may be different from ourselves. A eunuch from Ethiopia is on his way home after visiting the temple in Jerusalem to worship. He follows Jewish practices but is not a Jew. He is traveling between cities in the wilderness, neither at home or at his destination. He is of a different ethnic background that most of the people... In he is of a different ethnic background that most than most of the people in that place, and he is set apart because of his gender as a eunuch. The text tells us many ways in which he is between things, race, nationality, gender, location, and religion. And to this person in this situation, the angel of God sends Philip, one of the apostles, to go meet with him. They get to talking about the book of Isaiah, and Philip tells the eunuch the story of Jesus, which immediately draws him in. The eunuch spots a body of water and asks Philip if there's anything that would prevent him from being baptized. Apparently, it is a question that doesn't even need a response because they immediately go together to the water. And Philip baptizes the eunuch who then goes on his way rejoicing. Just as Jesus simply and without comment recognized differences in gender, people also did not see any need to speak about or create barriers to the eunuch's full participation in the community of faith. Again, this overthrows what is said in the book of Deuteronomy and follows with what God says through the prophet Isaiah. This story from the very early church tells us that baptism into the Christian community has been and should remain fully open to people of all genders. More than that, this passage reminds us that that welcome leads to celebration. Just as the eunuch continued his journey rejoicing, so too can full inclusion lead to joy in the lives of those who seek to join us in our communities of faith. Um, 
faithfully reading the Bible. As we read through the Bible, we see stronger and stronger messages of support for the full inclusion of transgender and gender nonconforming people. When once there was condemnation, the Bible itself tears down that wall and shows that in God's realm, such barriers do not matter. Just as there was nothing to prevent the baptism of the eunuch in the book of Acts, neither is there anything to block Christians and other people of faith from welcoming transgender people in community or insisting on their full dignity in our world. Where transgender and gender nonconforming people have faced rejection, violence, and discrimination, people of faith can reverse that, follow the biblical example to move to a place of understanding, welcome, and love, and welcome, love, and justice. Moreover, we can apply what the Bible teaches us about who our neighbor Moreover, we can apply what the Bible teaches us about who is our neighbor and how we are to treat other people, treating all as we wish to be treated by them. So, that was very exciting for me to read and to learn because I was taught the traditional view of gender and sexual diversity and people use the Bible to support that view. But I have met members of the LGBTQIA plus community and members of the LGBTQIA plus community have educated me on the relationship between gender, sexual diversity, and science, and that science is in favor of gender and sexual diversity, and that the that the conventional um, interpretation of gender and sexual diversity through holy books are indeed. Incorrect, and so that is what has convinced me that gender and sexual diversity are natural, normal, and healthy. I, 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 I am truly convicted of the fact that people are born gay. I think people are born gay. Science, they don't think that there's a gay gene, but I think people are born gay. And I think you could be born gay and there's no specific gay gene because you come into the world who you are. And you don't need somebody trying to say this as intelligently as I can you come into the world as you are and you're not gay because your mom or your dad or no you come into the world as who you are that's the best way I can explain it and the reason why I've come to that conclusion is because members of the LGBTQ plus community have told me that they knew that when they were three or four that they were in our gay. And that it was 
the thoughts they would have, the fantasies they would have, the dreams and desires they would have, and still have, because they still have, still have. And even family members and friends knew when someone was gay as a toddler, and those were correct um, assumptions, um, because these were the same people who... um, even if they had their leanings on how they felt about it, um, I think about the reality that people just knew. And for the most part, the stories I heard, they were treated well. You had some who they knew but still mistreated them, but overall, um, they came to the conclusion because of, I think, words that the toddler would say. Some, it was stereotypical, like the dolls and the, um, just playing with dolls. And I don't really like stereotypes, but these are the stories I was told by members of the LGBTQ plus community. And they, and, and, Members of the LGBTQ plus community have told me to share these stories publicly whenever I get a public platform. So I am not violating anybody's privacy here. I never do that. Um, I think that um, I um. I also think honestly that when there has been um, ways of understanding uh, life as an LGBTQ plus person, there are diverse ways of understanding what you're, what where you are in the gender sexuality spectrum. It could be an array of experiences, too numerous to to list, but we all know what they are. And I try to stay away from the stereotypical ways of perceiving that because stereotypes are traumatic within themselves when it comes to this conversation and this topic. And so I do not want to go follow that trap because as a human rights person, it's inhumane to do that. So I want to be honest and say that um, I reject the traditional interpretation of gender and sexual diversity because, to be honest, I chose to educate myself on life, you know, and just how life is diverse, you know? And so I think, honestly, um, that it's just very, very hurtful to live our lives um, being one-track-minded because how how the hell does that help any of us? You know what I mean? And so I, um... I choose to be smart. 
Um, dignified. I choose to be um, a well-educated uh, person. Um, this is my closing thought. Um, I support cross-dressing. In fact, let me really... This is the best way to close. I support LGBTQIA plus culture. I support drag queens. I support drag queens. I support drag kings. Okay, let me say that again. I support LGBTQIA plus culture. I support queer culture. I support gay culture. Um, I support drag kings. I support drag queens. I support pride parades. I support the rainbow flag. Um, I support gay villages. I support gay boarhoods. Um, I support LGBTQI plus social movements. I support LGBTQI plus rights. I support uh, gay liberation. Um, I support African American LGBTQI plus culture. I support African American. I support the African American LGBTQI plus community. I support pride parades. I support gay pride. Um, let me see here. I support LGBTQI plus youth culture. Um, I support gay straight alliance. I support GSA. I support the GLSEN, Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network. Um, I support trans marches. I support transgender relationships. I support transgender culture. I support um, trans men's groups. Uh, I support groups encompassing all transgender people, both trans men, trans women, and non-binary people, right? I support that. I support the transgender pride flag. I support transsexual culture, too. Um, I support cross-dressers. I support sex reassignment surgery. Uh, that's it. I support transgender culture, right? I did. Okay. I support the transgender community. Okay. I support the bisexual community. I support bisexual culture. I support the bisexual pride flag. I support lesbian culture. I support the lesbian community. Um, I support same-sex relationships. I support gay men's culture. I support homosexuality. I support lesbians. I support gays. I support bisexuals. I support transgenders. I support intersex people. I support hermaphrodites. I support metrosexuals. Uh, I support queer people. Uh, I support um, straight allies. I support asexual people. I support hermaphrodites. I support intersex people. Yes, I do. Because of the education that I received and that there is 100% harmlessness to gender and sexual diversity, hence my support. I educated myself by simply having loved base conversations and love based interactions with members of the LGBTQIA plus community. So that 
is how I landed where I landed. Do I feel bad about it? Hell no. Never. I do not ever feel bad about it at all. Um, I feel personally that it is quite hurtful to commit hate crimes against members of the LGBT plus community. I think that's fucked up. Um, and shitty. And dead wrong. A damn shame. No damn good. Nope, no good. That's how I feel about hate crimes and hate criminals against LGBTQ plus community and the foolish, wicked targeting of members of the LGBTQ plus community. Oh, by the way, I support queer art. Uh, I support LGBTQ plus art. I support queer aesthetics. Um, I support, you know, LGBTQ plus films, LGBTQ plus media. I support the entire LGBTQ plus community. I support LGBTQ plus events. I support coming out. I hate the closet because human beings are not closets. We wear clothes in closets, but we're not closets. Um, I I am for all LGBTQ plus topics that empower the LGBTQ plus community. I support the rainbow flag. I do. Um... I support um, absolutely the entire LGBTQ plus community and I support gender and sexual diversity in its entirety too. Um, I support LGBTQ plus history, LGBTQ plus marketing, LGBTQ plus symbols, um, positive media portrayal of LGBTQ plus people. I hate the negative media portrayal of LGBTQ plus people. I, I am I am a person who believes in being gay friendly, right? I believe that places, policies, people, and institutions should be open and welcoming, inclusive and affirming of LGBTQ plus people to have all members of the LGBTQ plus community belong to create an environment that to create all environments, faith-based and secular that are supportive of LGBTQ plus people and LGBTQ plus relationships. I believe in being respectful of all people, treat all people equally and, and being non-judgmental. That's where I stand. By the way, I love the human rights campaign and pro LGBTQ plus groups and entities and organizations and companies. For example, I support GLAAD, right? I got to give them a shout out. I support um, GLAAD. GLAAD is an American non-governmental media monitoring organization founded as a protest against defamatory coverage of LGBTQ plus people. I love GLAAD. They believe in to promote understanding, increase acceptance, and advance equality. This is what I feel. This is what 
This is my belief. This is my knowledge. These are facts. These are truths, right? And so, not backing down. And I'm so thankful that I have never been against nor uncomfortable LGBTQ plus people. I'll explain that in the next episode. Because there's more for me to share on this. Way more for me to share. But I will um, keep you in positive suspense. Like, how did you fully come to these conclusions? These are awesome conclusions. I'm not making fun of anybody. I'm just, I'm just super excited that I am thinking for myself with logic, reason, evidence, and proof. I love my stances on the LGBTQ plus community that are supportive. 